Marianne. Hi, Marianne. And welcome back to our podcast listeners. Hope you're all doing well. We are here to bring you a one-off special episode all about the COVID-19 origin story. Yes, it's a contentious topic, but that's never put us off before, right, Dan? Exactly. Uh, We've seen the positive role science communication can have on that interplay between government, expert and society. And I think many people, including children, do have a, a better understanding now about the role scientists and engineers have on their everyday lives because we've all seen it firsthand through the, the COVID pandemic. Just think about sort of the vaccine and all the incredible technology like the 3D printed low cost ventilators. And this has really helped with society's perception of what scientists and engineers do. So that's where science communication has gone well. But when it comes to the origins of COVID-19, things haven't been as straightforward. Many people believe that it's essential to understand how COVID-19 emerged if we want to prevent future outbreaks. But the evidence so far is inconclusive. If you ask a random person on the street, staying two metres away, of course, the answers might vary from someone ate a bat, Two, it's an engineered bioweapon, depending on who you ask. And it's not surprising that there's confusion about the issue. There has been a lot of conflicting information out there, hasn't there? Yeah, absolutely. And the story has moved so rapidly from, say, December 2019 up to now, where we're in September 2021. Here are just some of the examples of of things that we've heard. So in early days, there were the inflammatory remarks from the then US President Donald Trump who uh, seemed to uh, kind of tap his nose and indicate that he knew where the virus had leaked from, perhaps a lab in Wuhan. Then there were open letters written where scientists had both condemned the lab leak theory as a conspiracy and called for it to be taken more seriously. Then in February 2021, the World Health Organization concluded its first investigation in China and said that a lab leak was, quote, extremely unlikely. But then questions were raised about the impartiality of the WHO team and the influence that the Chinese government had had over the report. Most recently, the Biden administration in the US completed its own 90-day investigation and remains divided between two hypotheses, either that COVID-19 originated from natural exposure to an infected animal or from a laboratory-associated incident. In the last couple of months, China has turned down the WHO proposal for a second phase of the investigation into the origin of the virus. So there's a lot going on. There's a huge amount going on there, isn't there? The story is a prime example of how science and science communication are not separate from society, but totally entangled in it. And of course, if there's a big story concerning SciComm, then this study shows wants to talk about it. We want to know more about how the COVID-19 origin story has been shaped over the last two years and, crucially, what this means for science communication. So we've got a great panel lined up with us today to explore these issues with expertise from all sides of the subject. From a researcher perspective, we have Dr Ben-Hur Lee, Professor of Microbiology at Mount Sinai, New York. We're also joined by the columnist and foreign correspondent Ian Birrell, who has followed the COVID-19 origin story closely over the past 18 months. Yang Zhonghuang is a senior fellow for global health at the Council on Foreign Relations and an expert on China and global health. And finally, the psychologist Professor Karen Douglas, whose research examines why conspiracy theories appeal to so many people and the impact they have on individuals and communities. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Ben here, can I start with you? You're, you're a microbiologist. Can we start off with the theories about COVID origins? 
There is a lot of talk, isn't there, about um, infected animals and zoonotic disease. And then there's a story of a lab leak. Can you just explain those two scenarios for us, please? Yes. Um, let's just take a, a moment to define what a zoonotic disease is so that we're on the same page. Um, when scientists refer to a zoonotic disease, it usually means that a pathogen usually a virus, have jumped from an animal reservoir to a human. So it's zoonotic. Um, humans are not the natural host, but occasionally uh, the pathogen has the opportunity to infect humans and adapt and therefore um, can spread in humans. Um, so that's what a zoonotic disease, and we have many of those, like you hear about Ebola as a zoonotic disease. The natural reservoir is likely in bats or in great apes, but um, it jumped over to humans. Um, uh, Nipah is another one that's in bats, and of course, SARS. In fact, the first SARS was a zoonotic disease um, that was uh, investigated quite well, that jumped from bats to an intermediate host, to the intermediate host to humans. So um, in this case, um, when it first came out, uh, by all you know um, normal criteria, it seemed like a zoonotic disease because it was very much related to the previous SARS uh, virus that jumped from bats. Um, in terms of uh, um, what people have now thought about it as a laboratory leak, was that what you were asking? Yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, fortunately or unfortunately, you know, it, um, the disease happened in Wuhan. And it just so happens that China had opened its uh, Wuhan Institute of Virology there. So China is a big country, but uh, in any case, you know, the scientists working at Wuhan Institute of Virology were experts in coronaviruses. And so, you know, you can put uh, two and two together, so to speak, and, and assume that it might have come from there. But one must also realize that Wuhan, it's really kind of like the Chicago of China, where all, you know, the imports and rails and they meet and, and um, um, again, China is full of live animal markets where um, scientists know that that's a place where um, lots of viruses um, from animal reservoirs can intermingle and therefore have the opportunity to jump over to humans. And now remember, um, Wuhan's a city of like, I don't know, 11 or 12 million people, you know, so um, there's ample opportunities. And so we're still not sure that actually, you know, that's where... Um, you know, the virus jump, but we can get into that uh, later. So it's, it's people want to search for an explanation and it's easy to think that, you know, because the Institute was there, therefore the virus must have come out. But um, without going into details anymore, there's actually very little evidence that um, this virus is related to anything that scientists knew or had at that time. Um, having said that, it's difficult to prove a negative, but the other guests can jump in later. And there's that story with the lab leak as well, isn't there? There's the you can almost split those two into in, into two stories to to sort of think about that accidental lab leak. You know, it's just nobody's fault; it's a pure accident. And then some sort of intentional release of a of a bio weapon. You know, you you hear about this, don't you? Yes, uh, we do, and I try to not give it as much attention, but, you know, in this day and age, <laughs> the experts here that know better, you know, how conspiracy theorists sort of like uh, gain traction. Um, I would just say that only in Hollywood movies does it seem so simple to engineer a virus and do better than nature. <laughs> I mean, we do these things for a living. 
it is not easy to create something from <laughs> scratch without a blueprint. I mean, even the closest related virus had thousands of different changes between what we know and what SARS-CoV-2 has. And to adjust and make a virus from scratch, it's at least for these coronaviruses, is simply not easy. So, um, I, and you may raise a good point. So that's called your bioengineered, you know, uh, scenario. But you know, when you think about it, why would someone do that for something that you can't really control or predict, since you can't, right? Um, the other one is that maybe someone has collected the virus and it was in the laboratory and accidentally could have infected someone and, and, and you know, uh, have it uh, come out. Um, the fact of it is that um, um, depending on what biosafety level is, um, these are world-class institutions. They have very strict protocols um, to come in and out and monitoring their health. So um, it is uh, very unlikely. Being said that, of course, the Chinese government is not being helpful in not releasing all their records. But I just want to ask this when, when this gets out. If another country came and asked the United States government at Fort Detrick with all the BSL-4 labs and say, turn over all your records and let me see all every stock they have, would the US do it? I suspect not, because these are biosecurity labs. You know, we keep our records uh, very tight. So that leads us, Ian, to the role of the WHO investigation. Now, of course, the WHO is a United Nations agency. It should be working on behalf of all of us as international citizens in a non-partisan way. But the investigation into COVID-19 origins was a joint investigation between the WHO and China. China had a say in who was on the team, the mandate, the restrictions on the research, as well as what was then reported. So as a journalist, do you think that was a misstep? Because fundamentally, the, the trust in the transparency, the openness of this investigation was undermined right from the beginning. Yeah, if I could just come back a little bit also on what was said previously. If there was a an outbreak at Fort Detrick, of course, I'm sure a lot of people would wonder why it happened there, because uh, there aren't many bats kept there. And let's remember that Wuhan is hundreds of miles from the bat caves where the most likely source of this virus comes from. Also, we're not just talking about Wuhan Institute of Virology, which is the maximum security uh, laboratory at BSL-4, the, max, the highest level. We know that research was done with gain-of-function experimentation to increase the infectivity of bat coronaviruses in BSL-2 labs and also in BSL-3 labs, not just at Wuhan Institute of Virology. We also know research was done at the University Laboratory. We also know that research was done at the CDC Laboratory. So it's very simplistic to point always to the new BSL-4 lab. And the other fact which should come into play is it is, of course, possible that someone got infected while collecting viruses. We know from the grant applications, even by the researchers in Wuhan, that they admitted there was a risk of becoming infected while going into these bat caves and collecting all the uh, the material they needed from the blood and the, the urine or whatever the, of, of, in, of bats. You're in a very... Um, uh, high virulent area, and it's possible that you can get something. So we need to be quite careful about just dismissing it as a BSL-4 thing in Wuhan CDC. There is a, you know, there is the mystery that it happened there. Yes, it is a Chicago-like place, and it is a very busy city. It's in the middle of China and an intersection for lots of transport. But equally, it is also the research centre for all these uh, investigations that were going on into bat coronaviruses. So that's why it's valid to ask the questions. 
So on the WHO, to now answer your question, having waffled uh, on that, um, I think the WHO has basically shown that it's unsuitable uh, for this sort of thing, for this sort of incident, because it is made up by constituent parts. It's a UN body, and it ha and it's it's subject to all the politics of any UN body. So the WHO hasn't covered itself in glory. The problem is that that. The, for instance, there were three US, US scientists put forward for that body to take part in the study. They were all rejected because China had the had the veto on who was allowed to participate in it, as well as a majority in the number of participants. And the person who was chosen from America was Peter Daszak, the chairman of EcoHealth Alliance, which is the body that was funneling work for the US government to um, the Wuhan Institute of Virology and had been working and carrying out the research in the virus hunting and that shows how conflicted the WHO has been and the need we really have for a new type of global pandemic body, which is free of the geopolitics as far as can be as possible, because the pandemic has shown that the WHO uh, has not performed well and has been uh, shackled by competing political interests from different countries. Yeah, I mean, it, I'd like to bring you in here, um, Yang Zhang. Um, because it it is you know Ian's talking a lot about the, the the political side of it and and it does seem highly politicized, doesn't it? Do you think it was inevitable that the investigation into the COVID nineteen origins would become politicized? Well, the simple answer is no. It doesn't have to be uh, politicized this way. Because if you look at the, the um, tracing of the origins of SARS, right, it has not been politicized. It took the Chinese scientists 13 years, certainly, right, to uh, um, identify the origins, you know, uh, the animal reservoirs of the uh, SARS virus. And then if you look at the 2009 H1N1 pandemic, which you know, started in North America, that has not become politicized right, in terms of the origins. Right? Then if you look at H7A9, uh, the virus which started in China, uh, in 2013, right? Nobody was talking about you know, holding China accountable, you know, or need to actually to send a WHO team to China to uh, conduct a region's research, right? Uh, so you know, this is very rare, right? This is you know, issue of such importance becoming so politicized. In fact, if you look at the, the um, this virus, by right, the, the research of the origins, but in the beginning, right, China even did not challenge, right, the, the theory, right, or not the theory, well, this almost like a common sense, right, this started in Wuhan, right, uh, but it, you know, after, I think it was like um, end of February, you know, suddenly you have, you know, the, uh, um, Dr. Zhong uh, Nanshang, you know, said, oh, Wuhan is where the virus first detected. It doesn't necessarily mean that well, is the origin point of the outbreak, but the, he didn't present any evidence to substantiate uh, this re, uh, theory. Uh, but, uh, you know, immediately you have seen, right, that China basically pick up what he said and you know, make the argument, this is, uh, the same argument that China is well, the virus first detected doesn't necessarily mean it was a reaching point of the outbreak. Then you also then have you know, Trump and his allies you know, talking about in the so-called China virus and part of the theory, right, that, that uh, this virus could uh, you know, be manipulated in a Chinese lab. 
Do you think the reason that the response to COVID-19 has been different to SARS or avian flu or any of the other outbreaks that we've seen over the past decade or so is simply because of scale, that this really is a global pandemic that is <laughs> an often used word in the last 18 months, unprecedented. You know, we've got 220 million cases worldwide, four and a half million people have lost their lives. Is it just because we're all so much, and you know, global economies are, are, are kind of um, crumbled because of this. Is it is it just inevitable that people will be looking for causes, origins, someone to blame in a way that that didn't quite manifest with SARS because fewer people were affected? Yang Zhang. Oh, absolutely. I think that is one important reason, right? Because uh, the, the stakes are so high here, right? And people are entitled to the truth. And not to mention that, that we need that information you know, to prepare for the next disease outbreak. But uh, I think you know, those politicized, you know, you know, because A, by China, you know, are you, uh, being the first that was hit by the pandemic was also an early winner, right? So essentially by early April 2020, when other countries were still reeling from the uh, uh, the crisis, you know, China already right emerged as a wi early winner by being able to successfully uh, bring the uh, situation under control, right? And then, but you have the official narrative started to portray, you know, China as a success, right? Uh, in uh, um, taming the virus, you know, that and started to eliminate, right, the, the story, you know, uh, that. Uh, uh, in the initial stage of the outbreak, China didn't handle it, you know, uh, very well, right? But that story started to be removed from the official narrative, you know. And then you have Trump try to link the virus to China and calling for holding China accountable. You know that raised the stakes even higher because you know if you are like saying, well, China needs to pay for that, right? Some people you know come up with a number of ten billion. Right, uh, I'm sorry, ten trillion dollars. Right, you know, China cannot afford then to be uh, to be identified as the origin point of the outbreak. Can I can I just move us on to the public and and what the public believe and and why it matters as well and bring you in, please, Karen, because in in the early days, many many were were quick to call the the lab leak theory a conspiracy theory, weren't they? You know, if you think about Facebook. They originally had a, a policy of removing posts about the lab leak theory, um, although that's now been revoked. Uh, so, Karen, how how do you define a conspiracy theory, and and what conditions do they need to to start to spread? Um, well, a conspiracy theory is normally simply defined as a proposed plot carried out in secret by a group of people. Now, usually they're powerful people. Normally we're talking about governments, um, government agencies, pharmaceutical companies, um, people like that. And um, as, a, as a psychologist, I'm very interested in why these sorts of narratives appeal to so many people. And um, of course, it isn't really a big surprise, and, and um, others have already mentioned this, that when you have an event that is so big and so significant and so many people are affected by it, then people naturally want to know what the truth is. This is just something that people will want to do. They will want to know what's happened and why it's happened. So a very, very big event like this just requires an explanation. And also in times of crisis and great uncertainty, 
people will often look for alternative explanations to try and make sense of what's happening, I suppose, around them and also um, looking for ways to cope with, with a difficult situation where they feel personally threatened. They know other people who are also um, threatened or at risk. So these are kind of, I guess, the perfect conditions for a conspiracy theory to thrive. So people are experiencing a great I guess, deal of um, of threat and discomfort and uncertainty. And they have needs, I guess, the psychological needs to keep those things in check. And when they're not, then people start looking for alternative explanations for what might have happened. And, um, and uh, some scholars would argue that this actually works. So people will look to conspiracy theories and they will feel a little bit better because they at least know... Um, well, they feel that they know why things are happening because governments and various other people are, uh, are controlling the truth and it makes it makes sense to understand why you don't have any power. Um, and uh, they help sort of reduce uncertainty because you feel that you have perhaps a little bit of knowledge that you didn't have before or knowledge that other people don't necessarily have. And um, But unfortunately, there is quite a lot of evidence emerging now to suggest that they... That is, these conspiracy theories don't really help people to cope. They don't really make people feel any better. If anything, they make people feel slightly um, or significantly, in some cases, worse. Um, so yeah, they have they have consequences. But um, yeah, this is why that this is why they're appealing to people at a at a particular time like this because it is a time of crisis and great uncertainty, and and people are people are looking for answers and looking for ways to cope. Really? It's so difficult, though, isn't it, Karen? Because some of the the information that we have about COVID nineteen, about um, the, the the models that we've been able to to build about other zoonotic diseases and how they've spread and and then modified themselves so they can, you know, wreak havoc on human populations, they that's based on very credible, solid scientific uh, consensus. And then we've got these aspects that you go, well, hang on a minute, if you add this complicated bit of science and, you you know, we, we know that people have been doing research into bat coronaviruses and they've been doing it in this part of China and that part of China and this bit of, of the US in these kind of secretive, high-security bio labs, all the pieces of information are true. It's just how people then put it into a story that has this enormous emotional resonance. It's, it's tricky, isn't it? Because... It, they haven't made it up. They might just have reached a conclusion that isn't scientific consensus, that might be overreaching the facts that we have. Yeah, um, that is true. And I think that that's the case for a lot of conspiracy theories. There's, um, again, in times of crisis or uncertainty, there's often a lot of information coming at people from all sorts of different sources and changing information all the time as well. So we know something about a disease um, then we know something else and then next week we find out something else completely different. So with all of that uncertainty, putting that together with a suspicion of authorities and a suspicion of scientists or a, mis a mistrust or distrust in scientists, then um, people do start to join the dots. And, of course, then the conspiracy theory can evolve when it's communicated, when it's shared with other people, it can change and it can grow and new layers of information can be constantly added. And of course, this is not to say that 
sometimes these pieces of information are not true. And of course, sometimes later on, you might find, well, actually, that did happen. That is true. Um, this, this, this also does, this also does happen sometimes. Um, I think Ben Ho might have mentioned this earlier, you can never disprove um, these conspiracy theories a lot of the time. It's very difficult to kind of prove that something didn't happen. Um, so this is this is how these theories kind of grow and um, become very popular as well. I, I yeah, just, ben, go ahead. I, I just, you know, with some more area of expertise, I think Karen hit on something too. Even as scientists, we have lots of data I'm not talking about this case particularly, but uh, the human tendency is to try, we tell stories, whether in science or in fiction, we put data together to come up with a story that sells. And I think in the when you have such a, uh, a big thing like, uh, like the COVID-19 pandemic that, that affects everyone, we're in search for an explanation that makes sense in our worldview. So a lot of things could be true, true, but not necessarily related. There's been talk amongst scientific communities and the way that um, letter, open letters have been published, preprints have been published, about whether scientists have been on side with helping a kind of an open and transparent conversation or whether they've stifled some of these aspects of the story. Ben Hurt, do you think that this lab leak theory is a risk to the reputation of science. And that's perhaps why some scientists have either refused to go on record, have, have changed their minds, have um, condemned the whole thing as, as, as conspiracy theory out of hand. It's, it's been described that if, if uh, COVID-19 had been accidentally released from a, a, a lab, it would be the Chernobyl, the kind of the nuclear disaster equivalent for the life sciences. I mean, first of all, um, I think scientists are human beings, me included, and um, uh, also it's the first time that actually, you know, anyone cares about scientists, right? So <laughs> most of the time... <laughs> We've always cared. <laughs> most of the time, we don't we don't get airtime at all. And so, you know, a lot of us, you know, not, not me, but necessarily, but, you know, became overnight stars, right? And they'll find any venues that will, it's just because they have a PhD behind their names. <laughs> so, you know, the fact is, I mean, uh, when you're a professional scientist and you work within the field, like any field, there are people with varying opinions, right? And, you know, perhaps mathematics it's something that's, you know, but other than that, most scientists rely on, on data and real opinions are formed around on data and some of it is more logical than, than, than others. So I think as scientists, one um, should be able to revise one opinions in the face of new data. That's what science is. We march towards what we think is the truth. Right, we like I, I mentioned mathematics, and I see somebody laughing. It's because that's one of those fields where you can't argue. It's either logical, or you're not, or you have to be able to follow the whole proof. But in biological sciences, you build up um, a set of um, data and theorems that sort of like try to explain um, the best the, the, the set of facts. So um, I think good scientists, we can have our opinions change in the light of data and. Um, and some people, they hold their opinions steadfast, right? Yeah, um, you know, very um, well-known scientists who still don't believe that HIV causes AIDS, right? And that has been done to death. So um, I don't know what goes on in the mind of some scientists that have um, tried to give uh, quite sensationalistic theories. I'll just say that um, when, you, when you take the bulk of evidence carefully, um, you know, you come down on the side is like, um, this has happened mostly because um, 
uh, most pandemics have happened uh, because they've jumped from animal reservoirs or not. This lab leak theory, you can't prove a negative. So uh, could it have jumped from a cultured virus in the laboratory? Uh, perhaps I'll explain why it's unlikely. Is it uh, the too fast? Is it a bioengineered weapon? I'm quite positive that it isn't just because, like I said before, if one wants an engineered virus and sat down and do a blueprint, one could do a much better job. <laughs> so um, if that's the case, but the fact that um, it's unlikely to have been cultured because you know you want a virus to jump from a lab to um, a personnel, so it has to be cultured in the laboratory from all we know about SARS-CoV-2 right now. And this is true. The moment you culture out from someone's nostrils and you put it into cells like viral cells and they grow, there are certain changes that occur. This furin site that you all guys um, may have heard about, we won't get into detail. People say, ah, that doesn't happen in coronaviruses. It must be engineered. That's not true. It happens in all sorts of animal coronaviruses. But the fact remains is if you try to culture that in cell culture in the most common cell lines, it immediately changes the mutation. So it is very difficult to get the original version without telltale changes that have occurred in cell culture. These are just basic things that those of us who work on it know, but it's lost in the noise of everyone talking about what's special or not special about this virus. And you can't drown out the noise because too many people have a stake in it now, one way or the other. I'd, I'd like to bring Ian in on this, please, because um, Ian, you wrote an article, didn't you, suggesting that the scientists had stifled the lab leak theory. Um, just tell us what you meant by that and, and what experiences you had when you were trying to get the scientists to go on record um, to discuss the, the COVID origin theories? Well, the reality is we know there is historic precedent uh, for natural spillover from animals, but we also know this historical precedent with uh, uh, laboratory incidents. And we're not, you know, I think let's all forget about the bioterrorism idea. I think that's just, that's craziness. So the issue is, why is it that so many scientists immediately jumped on this and said it's conspiracy theory to say that you should investigate the idea of the lab leak hypothesis, which has finally been eroded now as more scientists have come out? What I found was there were some very credible scientists who were talking about this and saying we need to investigate this. They weren't saying there was a lab leak. They were just saying you need to look at all the evidence and you only get rid of a theory when you've got proof that it's wrong. And we don't have any evidence either way on this. And yet the scientific community uh, has been guilty of largely coalescing around a few influential figures who have pushed the idea of conspiracy theory. They haven't declared conflicts of interest. They haven't challenged inaccurate data. They haven't reacted quickly to complaints. And they've also kept out alternative viewpoints. Now, it's not a conspiracy theory to say that science should always, like journalism in my industry, is just as guilty as the scientific community. I think probably because of Trump inflaming this and making, when I began looking at this, I thought, why do I want to look into this conspiracy theory? Because Donald Trump was saying it. But then I began to find credible scientists who were saying, well, hang on, there are these weird things going on and you shouldn't dismiss it. You know, science shouldn't dismiss it. Journalism shouldn't dismiss it. And my issue is the way that the scientific community, uh, led by people with vested interests, have have tried to suppress the open discussion of whether the hypothesis is valid or not. And that's the real failing, I think. We don't know what caused the origins, uh, whether it's natural or, or some kind of laboratory incident. What we do know is that there has been a rather sad suppression 
uh, an attempt to, to silence debate on this issue. And it's, it's, it's weird when it's an issue of such crucial importance. Do you think they're protecting personal reputations, funding streams, opportunities for future collaboration, or is this protecting the reputation of science more and scientists more, more broadly? You know, the idea that if science did this to us, then we're going to reject science. And actually a lot of scientists go, oh my goodness, we, we can't afford that to happen. We're better off just keeping quiet until there is a, you know, a wall of evidence that means that we all need to tell a different story. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm trying always to follow facts, follow evidence. But the one thing I don't know is why it happened. It could have been that Trump was president. It was a very high tension time when he was mouthing off against China and people were scared of the implications if it came out, which is understandable. Uh, it could be reputational damage for people who are funding research which they shouldn't have been funding or which caused this. It could be that if it is proven to be a laboratory mistake rather than, say, a sampling mistake in the field, then that will have profound implications for research and the type of research being done and the type of controls on it. It could be a mixture of all of them. It could be personal reputations. It could be um, financial considerations. It could be political fears of a global conflict even. Uh, I don't know the answer to that, and I'd be fascinated to find out, but there's only a very few people who could answer that. I'm really interested in in how we can how we can get better at this in the future, how how we can communicate science better. And um you are all from from different areas, from different sectors, and so I'm really interested in, in the different points of view uh, that you all might have. Karen, if I could come to you first, what do you think is the best way of communicating scientific information when there are still so many unknowns? Um, yeah, that's a that's a very tricky question. I think a lot of a lot of scientists would really love to know the fundamental answer to that. But um, I think um, honesty is very important. Uh, I guess express to people what the limits of science are, but at the same time, consistency in the message is also extremely important. The minute a message is becomes inconsistent, then it can completely fall apart, and people won't trust you anymore. Um, so I'd say that those two things are probably um, probably the most important um, things for scientists to consider. Yanchong, how do you think the response to COVID-19 will change, if at all, Chinese government's approach to communication strategies to openness and transparency in, in SciComm? Well, I, I, I'm not sure whether that is going to make a China more transparent, right, more uh, sort of open in terms of uh, communicating with the public. I think the, the opposite might be true, given what is happening, right, given all these high stakes involved right, in this uh, origin tracing research. We have, you know, if there's anything that I think China, Chinese government can learn from this, all this, you know, Discussions, talks about origins of transparency, is that <laughs> of the this this virus origin issues. I think it is, you know, the importance of controlling by right, the, the information, right? That the uh, uh, you have seen how they were su so successful in terms of convincing uh, the Chinese public, you know, that the, you know this virus is not coming from China, you know, it's from you know countries like the United States. You know, I'm sure you know that it is. 
to my knowledge, it's certain that we don't have any systematic survey data to prove that, but the, my hunch tells me it's like more than 90% of the population in China believe, right? This virus, you know, originated from outside you know, China and the United States, the Fort Detrick, it should be responsible for the virus. So it's just a proof, you know, how successful, right, that these, the, uh, the, the official narrative have been, you know, within the country and how, you know, that, uh, you know, this the repeating of this information um, uh, that even though it may not be true, you know, can be so powerful, can be so, you know, easily internalized you know, by the people, you know, especially right in this context of the U.S.-China rivalry, right? The, the, uh, the story can, can evoke the strong nationalist sentiments that solidify the public support of official narrative on the origins of the outbreak. ben there's been talk, whether you're talking about um, a, a, a natural zoonotic transfer to humans or whether we're talking about a lab leak, often the conversation ends up having racist undertones. How much do you think scientists need to engage with that side of, of the storytelling? Because the facts can go out there sort of objectively, perhaps, but then we all know that that people tell stories and that, you, you know, the information that you're putting out into the world doesn't remain pristine. It, it becomes part of a story that people tell and share. How much are scientists responsible for the foreseeable consequences of, of information that they that they put out there? Um, I think I have learned through this pandemic too that uh, my own worldview, what's obvious to me, may not be obvious to others. And um, this... This uh, racial undertones may be true, but some of it is probably not even conscious, right? Because we are unfamiliar with cultures that we're unfamiliar with. So, um, but it's part of scientists to be able to uh, communicate more transparently. So I do agree with, with Ian, in a sense. Um, but uh, I, I don't know. I'm, I mean, you know, I, 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 may, I may look Chinese, but I'm not. Um, um, and uh, I, I don't know the Chinese society, but... Uh, I, I suspect that um, you know when um, their culture is at stake, or whether the government has a, some um, a face-saving grace when push comes to shove, they may become more um, recalcitrant rather than more transparent. So, are there more um, productive ways that we could engage the stakeholders to be more open about it uh, up front? Um, I'm not sure whether there was a considered efforts um, to suppress information uh, at the beginning. I I certainly didn't feel that way, and but uh, perhaps in the uh, um, current climate, people may be a bit more cagey about saying what they have to say just because the blowback. It's like you know, the, it's so loud on social media regarding whatever you're saying, even when we're trying to say the truth. And so some of it may have resulted in some scientists because we're not used to saying things that can be taken in so many different ways. But uh, we can try our best to qualify things when I speak to journalists about what these uh, things particularly mean, because as you know, um, good meaning scientists have uh, have their words twisted around and sort of like um, you know, captioned and used for purposes that they weren't intended to. But uh, we can only hope that the conversation among well-meaning people will lead to the truth. So well, we do have to engage more and we have to engage more at a level that um, 
people understand. So it's our job as well not to live in that ivory tower. But it's interesting to hear the journalists um, digging up some truth and see whether, um, you know, how do we explain it from our side? I think that's a conversation that needs to be had. Finally, just one one last comment, Ian. Um, what do you think we've learned in terms of good side communication, bad science communication about COVID-19 and the origin controversy? Uh, I think that there have been some brilliant scientific communicators in this, uh, where the well-known like David Rollman, the Stanford uh, scientist, or someone like Alina Chan at the Broad Institute, who have very calmly just said, keep exploring all the fact, keep exploring everything. They've they've realized it's such a heated debate and they've kept out of the heat, they've kept calm, and they've very much kept saying, just keep exploring it, follow the evidence, don't ignore anything until the evidence isn't there. I mean, I think scientists, it's very difficult because science is often complex. Uh, at its best, science is a sort of battle of ideas and it's people sort of engaging, sometimes in very genteel language, but quite brutal challenges to each other. Um, but that's the best of science, and that's how science works at its best. And the difficulty, I think, is trying to find ways to convey those complex ideas and complex battles uh, into, into a medium of journalism, which is inevitably less, less um, complex often. Uh, but it can be done, and there are scientists who show that it can be done. I think it's done with clarity, it's done with honesty, and it's done actually by trusting journalists and working. I mean, I've worked with some brilliant scientists who have stopped me saying really stupid things because of my lack of understanding, who have guided me towards things that I would otherwise have missed. Um, science and journalism can work together to communicate complex ideas. And in many ways, it's interesting if you look at this debate, they're quite complex ideas we're talking about. We're talking about chimeric coronaviruses. We're talking about gain-of-function research. We're talking about the Furin cleavage site. When I first mentioned that, um, you know, my editor looked at me in horror, but now that sort of pops up in copy the whole time. So, you know, it is a there is a positive side to end on a more positive note. These are very complex discussions we're having about the nature of science, about nature of scientific research, about where we are with biosafety, where we are with biotechnology. And so there is a positive spin on the whole thing, which is actually it's quite good that we're discussing these very complicated scientific ideas with world-beating scientists on all sides. Um, and that's to be encouraged. And maybe that's a positive out of the whole thing. Great. Great note. Great positive note to end on, Ian. Thank you. <laughs> Karen, Ian, Yang Zhong and Ben Hurt, thank you so much for sharing your experience and insight with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Dan, I must admit, I don't know still how much of a difference it will make when we're facing the next global pandemic whether COVID-19 came from a lab leak from some kind of animal coronavirus or whether it came from direct interaction with an animal reservoir of viruses. Because the bottom line is, once that cat is out of the bag, maybe that's a bad example, <laughs> the, bottom <line> is, <laughs> the bottom line is, once that virus is unleashed and able to transmit between humans... Mm you know, we're no longer in control. And I don't know whether the the origins of COVID-19 are to some extent a little bit of a red herring, whereas actually we should be spending at least as much attention on looking at, well, how do we reduce conflict between wildlife and humans? How do we improve protocols in biocontainment labs? 
how do we actually improve our response once one of these viruses is unleashed mm. on the human population and is transmissible between humans? Yeah, I know what you mean, but I, th I think there are some things that we can learn from it as well. And, and you know, even just, just the conversation we've just had, you know, four different views of the same thing. And we only had four, four people on the panel. So... So clear communication is so important and that's going to be so important, you know, in the future. And I think, you know, common things that we've talked about lots in, in on this study shows, you know, for your communication, you need to keep calm, you need to keep exploring the facts, you need to find ways to convey really complex ideas in a way people understand. And I think that's the thing that maybe we can learn from this. I'm not quite sure we've done that very well in this situation. But fundamentally, when you've got, a fast-changing, very dynamic situation, you've got new information coming in or being becoming being made available, the kind of the information, the landscape, the potential conclusions do also change very quickly. And, and as Karen pointed out, when you change your mind, people don't trust you as much. Mm. But science fundamentally is about constantly changing your mind when presented with fresh evidence. So we we come back to that fundamental tension, don't we, between telling a story that never changes and telling a scientific story, which is always changing. Yeah. But this isn't the only scientific story that that's changing. There's lots of scientific stories that change. So we have to work out what went wrong or what has gone wrong with, with the communication of the origins of, of COVID-19. Yeah. I guess, I guess not all scientific stories have that immediate personal impact of having killed four and a half million people. Mm. That's why it's so emotive. That's why it's so powerful. And that's why it's, it's clear that communication is so important. Good communication is so important. Well, it just remains for us to say thank you so much for listening to This Study Shows. Please make sure you follow us in your podcast app and leave us a lovely review if you like. And if you'd like to get in touch, then please do tweet us at Wiley in Research. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Goodbye. This Study Shows is a listen entertainment production for Wiley Research. It's presented by Danielle George and me, Mariano Hotter. It's produced by Maddie Hickish. The executive producer from Listen Entertainment is Nick Minter. And the executive producer from Wiley Research is Samantha Green. <laughs>